obviously we can't represent what somebody with a learning disability or intellectual disability is experiencing and it would be wrong of us to to try and say we're representing that Um, but I think what we can do is highlight actually you need to find ways of communicating and listening and it might not be listening with your ears necessarily to spoken words it it might Mm -hmm. be sound or body language but you need you know people who find it very difficult to communicate Mm. you need to make extra effort like so I think that maybe that we can maybe we can help people to you know really think about different experiences and sometimes when I go into special schools they'll say you know uh it's really good to hear you speak because um you give us ideas of how somebody might be experiencing the world and then they can use that information to try different ways of supporting somebody to see if that works better. Hope you enjoyed that pop pickers and we've got plenty more fab tunes coming your way right after this podcast. 
I never thought I'd live to see the day when I'd say all that for a recording. This is Paul Wadey, and thank you and welcome, and welcome and thank you to the fifth Gorilla Aspies podcast here at the height of the COVID-19 coronavirus epidemic where we all haven't had our blood tests yet and discovered we've all got it, we assume. And I'm going to introduce you to my very good friend, Robin Stewart. What to say about Robin? She's packed in a huge amount and she's still only 33. Let's go, shall we? She's autistic and for over 15 years she's been traveling the world helping people like teachers, adult support workers and social workers understand more about autism. She's worked with parent groups. She's talked to whole school assemblies, trained teachers there after school as well. She does speeches and workshops. She talks about safety, what is autism, communication, emotions and strategies. She makes podcasts for the BBC and she works with uh, Jamie and Lion presenter Jamie Knight. She's the one who did uh, 1,800 Seconds on Autism, which can be found on BBC Sounds. I'm reading from her website and it's very, very good. RobinStewart.com. Good name for it. I'm also host of the Autism Journal podcast, it says here. Now, Robin has written two books, one of which is the Independent Woman's Handbook for Super Safe Living on the Autistic Spectrum, which I try to tell her is a world unique thing. And she goes, oh, no, there's a few other people doing something like it, but not quite, which ruins the whole effect and makes a fool of me in the podcast. You're going to love that bit. But what is unique is her book called The Autism Friendly Guide to Periods, which no one's actually written. So I got it the wrong way around. Both available from Jessica Kingsley. Robin got hold of a trumpet a few years and put aside her guitar, which she was very fond of, and with which she's made a, quite a bit of music, a few EPs. She was selling them a few years ago with her unique artworks on them, because she paints as well. There's no end to her. She's a polymath. Her trumpet has given her a whole new lease of creative life, and you've got to catch that music online as well. It's there up on the website. And, of course, she's won awards. What else? In 2015, she was joint awardee of the National Autistic Society's Professional Award for Outstanding Achievement by an Individual on the Autism Spectrum for her work raising awareness around abuse experienced by autistic people. Then in 2018, she was listed on the Power 100 list of most influential disabled people in the UK. And she's an ambassador of the National Autistic Society. Good old Robin. And here she is. First of all, Robin Stewart, thank you very much for coming on the Gorilla Aspies podcast. A true Gorilla Aspie, may I say. Thank you. Well, I really enjoyed your episode of Alex Plank. Um, mm. I'm a member of Wrong Planet too, and I joined. I'm not sure 100% when exactly, but I, you know, I was quite young, and I'm lucky. I guess I'm, you know, kind of the first. Um, I guess I'm the first generation, maybe, or I'm in the first generation of people who um, have found out when they're a child yeah. that they're autistic. Because um, I'm, mm. I think I'm pretty much the same age as Alex, so mm. kind of the same. Maybe he's slight. I don't know, he's... 33. I'm, he's 33, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, I'm, I'm 33, so we're about the same age. Uh, and I, so I think that that's, um, I, you know, I feel really excited to be episode five because Alex Plank, you know, is a bit of a hero, really, because, you know, what he did uh, and with his mate to create Wrong Planet, I mean, that's, that's right. really, it's really life-changing because it meant people could connect with each other. He was really cool. I did want to ask him lots of questions about lots of things. I just wanted to get to know him. So we had a really brief uh, recording. And mainly we were just socialising, which is really good. They put him in a really nice hotel uh, in the centre of town, him and his service dog. 
So I spent time with the three of us. And at one point in Covent Garden, you met another American person, a woman who had another dog. And we had a dog-in, kind of a, a doggy loving, which was great. What would you call that? A canine cuddling. Now, we've known each other for a while, haven't we? Yeah, um, yeah, I think we met at the House of Commons in yeah. about 2008. That's right. There was a reception for the I Exist campaign, and I'd done a podcast for the NAS, and you came along, and that's how we met in this <clears throat> reception. I'm trying to remember now. It was in a building that was in a kind of a courtyard at the back of the Houses of uh, Parliament. You hadn't moved to London then. Oh, okay, maybe. So maybe it was more like 2007. Yeah. Well, you might have just come to London. I think you'd only just arrived. Well, I moved in... Um, I think I'm, I moved to London in 2008, I think. Right, so it must have been then. You'd, you'd only just come. You were in the first place, which we looked at one time on, on a walk. But I was thinking of you as like Dick Whittington, that you came along yeah. and you made everything from nothing, all on your own. You found people to support you and work with, but you made the whole thing on your own, stage by stage. And now you've got two books out. Can you tell us about the books? Yeah. Um, well, gosh, thank you. That's that's um, that's just really nice. Yeah. I, firstly, I'd like to say that I think a lot of people helped me um, to get where I am, and a lot of people like you who've been around for longer than me, you know, really made what I do possible. So you know, that, and there's a lot of you know, people like you and Dinah Murray and lots of people, Wen Lawson. Mm. Um, and without that and without people making those connections, you know, it wouldn't have been possible to do, to do these things. Um, the first book is uh, The Independent Woman's Handbook for Super Safe Living on the Autistic Spectrum. And um, it's uh, about safety for autistic women. Um, and I wrote it because um, I'd experienced uh, sexual abuse and I hadn't really understood what had happened really until I talked to you and you were kind of, uh, you were like, no, you shouldn't be treated like that. Um, and, uh, you know, that that was really important. And then I subsequently learned that, you know, other people had been hurt by the same person. And I realised that there wasn't a lot of... Um, you know, information for autistic women about safety and, uh, no, like there are lots of books written by autistic people and they're like, it is, and it's always growing and it's really important. Um, <clears throat> but still, you know, like I think, uh, Claire Sainsbury's book, Martian in the Playground, did that come out yes. in 2004? Yeah. yeah. Pre preceded everybody else. It's really well written. I can't remember if it was 2004, mm. 94, but anyway, um, I think that, um, you know, there's lots and lots of autistic people doing writing now, which is really good. Um, but what often happens is, uh, like, people don't, um, like, there were a few people, like, I was particularly inspired by um, Rudy Simone's Asperger's book. Um, but a lot of books are just about the person's experience or, yes. you know, it's not kind of based on research, which is really important. I'm not trying to knock that. Yeah. But I wanted to do something that was not really based on my experience like the motivation came from my experience but I wanted to understand how different autistics different autistic people experience different things um uh with regards to safety and where people's vulnerabilities were and also how autistic women's experience of safety related issues compared to non-autistic women because 
when you're writing a book, you want to try and get a niche within the market. Like you don't want to just, you know, reinvent the wheel, so to speak. You, you want to write something that is actually going to be of use to people. And so what I wanted to do was work out, well, how are autistic, because there are books, obviously, on women's safety, but how are autistic women different in terms of safety? Or maybe another way of saying that might be, how are autistic women you know, where are they vulnerable, where non-autistic women are maybe not so vulnerable, so that I could give them strategies that were autism related, but, or, you know, sort of geared towards autistic people, but were also actually giving people what they need. And I think that, um, you know, that because the broad, that there are more neurotypical people in the world than autistic people, um, that sometimes I think that people... You know, a lot of things are geared for non-autistic people. Yeah. Um, I think that I think it can be helpful to look at the differences, not in a way of like, oh, the autistic people are a problem. I don't mean like that. Yeah. Um, because actually, neurotypical people within the research that I did for the book, they were more likely to lose money than autistic people. So mm-hmm. it doesn't always mean that autistic people are going to not be as good as neurotypical people. I'm not trying to say neurotypical people are better or anything, but just that... Um, if, if, you know, from a point of view of writing a book, if I can understand what is different for autistic people compared to non-autistic people, then hopefully I can be a bit more useful because I can really put a lot of effort into those areas. Yeah. Now, Um, what you don't take into account is your own individual take on all this, your own unique, what is called charisma. Uh, your interpretation is the thing. The book isn't simply a lot of research and dry academia. It's an autistic woman, a young and relatively vulnerable autistic woman, who is the normal type, the, the biggest target for abuse and manipulation and exploitation, grooming, you name it. And you, who quite public about being a survivor of that, proceeded to write a book and well-researched it and got it published. Never underestimate your contributions. Very modest as ever, but but the thing about your work is your own personal lived experience, which is unique. And that's why that book had to exist. And as I always talked about your book in in my shows, and I said, well, it didn't exist before Robin brought it into existence. Why didn't it exist before? And that's how bad things have been, because it's been a lot of dry academia about, oh, yes, they're all very vulnerable and young, and they're very easily taken for a ride. But there wasn't actually anyone talking from the inside out, because we're fairly unique in that respect amongst autistic people that we can communicate like this. Well, there was um, Lorraine holiday Willie. She wrote a book. Um, I can't remember what it's called, but that is about female safety. And there's there's another couple as well, and uh, there's one that's got a green cover that's, I can't remember the full title, but it's something like things you should know if you're dating men or something. Mm. So there, there were a few. <laughs> um, Don't but, I, <laughs> but I really wanted to try really hard um, to kind of be, um, I think you'd say objective in that I didn't want to cast yeah. opinion or, you know, tell tell people what to think. I wanted to, to give them information so they could make their own mind up, but try and do it in a friendly way that was, yeah. you know, um, I guess more conversational. Yeah. Um, and in that yeah, way, in, I think you'll find, nonetheless, I mean, you did put over a unique and important experience of your own. 
And then the next one I'm really proud of. I'm proud of all of them, but yeah. the next one is the Autism Friendly Guide to Periods. Right. Um, and uh, so the, the niche I was trying to fit there was firstly, as far as I'm aware, there's never been, um, like, there's, there's, I guess, I guess I think that with books about <clears throat> autism, I think yeah. that people, I mean, obviously they go on Amazon, but I think also that people go to publishers that they know publish about autism. So like Jessica Kingsley publishers and uh, Lucky Duck Publishing and uh, the uh, and AAPC and Horizon, like those are the publishers I think that people go to, you know, mm. if they want good information. And so there'd not been a period book that had been published by, you know, one of those publishers that I'm yeah. aware of. Um, there had been, you know, books written by autistic people about periods, right. um, but not published by one of those publishers that I, that I was aware of anyway. Um, I wanted to write something. That I didn't actually want to write a book about periods initially. I wanted to write something more about the gender spectrum. Um, uh, yeah, I wanted to, to look at um, the gender spectrum more widely, but... Um, Jessica Kingsland, I think quite rightly, sort of steered me towards writing about periods. Mm. And I think that's right because I'm a cis woman, so I was born in a woman's body and I identify as a woman. Right. And, you know, like when you like when you think about, yeah, I mean, it's kind of weird. Like I wouldn't write a book about pregnancy because I've never been pregnant. And I wouldn't, you know, uh, I couldn't write a book about being a boy because I'm not a boy mm. so um so you know I think uh, when you're writing um well I mean there's plenty of people you know like historians and people like that who write non-fiction books and they don't have that experience but maybe what I bring to the genre if it is a genre is the lived experience mixed in with the research and the the sort of hopefully friendly approachable style um so yeah so basically JKP put to me that I could write a book about periods and initially I have to I'll be honest I wasn't that thrilled about it because <laughs> I was like doesn't everyone know about periods which you know when I think about it that's stupid but I no, oh no it's very straightforward it's the body it's a straightforward part of women's lives that's it but it wasn't was it well, no, once I, I, so I did a survey because yeah. every project I do, I start with a survey of 100 yeah. autistic people. Um, and obviously, um, I did, so I did 100 autistic people who have periods and 100 autistic people who don't have periods. But I also, in the initial survey, sort of widened it to people that have need to know about periods. So, for example, um, there was a, a man who filled it out who um, his mum had had periods and so he he filled it out so like um because what I was focusing on was the education what kind of education do people get about periods and so that doesn't matter what gender or sex you are because everyone should learn about periods um so what I found was that uh unsurprisingly boys often don't learn about periods in school um and uh I mean, that seems like, like, like as a girl in school, I remember learning about boys having wet dreams and about, you know, penises. And I don't have a penis um, and I don't, you know, obviously, well, yeah, I don't, you know. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> see, we learn that the stuff. The thing about what? the subject is, like, oh, the birds and the bees, vaginas and penises. But what 
you're saying is that the reproductive cycle of females of the monthly egg and ovulation and periods, which has an, uh, can have to varying degrees an effect on the individual or not at all, uh, was something that was not taught to males at all. I mean, you understand it in basic biology, but what you're saying is there's no depth to the experience. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes I don't think that they're necessarily taught the basic biology, but I, yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure. Now, I think because I think in the US that sex education varies state yeah. by state. Oh, because um, there's a lot of Christianity, a lot of religious biasing and affecting what people are taught about these things. Because there's certain people quite desperate to stigmatize anything but heterosexual relationships and anything else. They don't want people loving each other and having, con- you know, consensual sex between the same genders or transgender people having sex. Well, my- I mean, the very idea of such freedom. Well, my parents told me um, what being gay meant when I was 12 and I had gay friends. So mm-hmm. I grew up knowing, you know, that it wasn't all the world wasn't full of heterosexual people, but I didn't learn that from school. It wasn't represented, so, um, and they also in sex ed they never talked about um, they they never really talked about um, you know like that sex can be fun and people loads of people have sex and don't have a baby. You know like it's <laughs> pretty effective. Well, and the idea are of sexual effective. activity is a and, recreational activity. What they never mentioned was using contraceptives. I mean they did in my generation in the 70s. I know they talked about contraceptives yeah. but I mean they just talked about it as if sex was just to have a baby and that was it. <laughs> and well, because they, they they've got to stick no to the syllabus. There's no disabled people within yeah, that. Yeah. Oh disabled people don't have sex. I mean come on autistics don't have sex. The very idea these Disabled people getting together and getting married and having so ooh 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 they go in homes dear they go in, they live with their parents until they're old and they can't do it the very idea <gasps> my friend George Steves in America who did the Magic Eight Ball show he's going to do a show called Confessions of a Gay Dating Aspie wink wink <laughs> well um but the other thing is that I subsequently learned was that um, kids often particularly yeah. kids are going to have periods, they want more information on periods than they do sex when they learn about it in year five. Mm. Uh, so when they're mm. like 10, 9 because or 10. Because there's a whole element that you haven't um, mentioned at all, and that is negotiation of acquiring and going through with sex. Well, it's, it's true. Um, it's true, but isn't it? Well, and my I think, point is that sorry. as a girl, I felt yeah. like, I knew quite a lot about the male hormone experience. I mean, obviously, I wasn't living it, but I yeah. felt like I didn't know about it. But from the survey that I did, I don't think that boys had much education. Yeah, yeah obviously, now they're men. But, you know, I don't think they had much edu- I was I was surveying adults, and I don't think they had much information at school um, yeah. about periods. Uh, but also, just from reading the responses of, autistic women particularly yes. I realized how much there was that was really like that there was really information that wasn't so readily available but was obviously really important to autistic people managing periods so for example um rather than using um, sanitary pads or tampons lots of lot, I mean this is true of the general population that they right. find these useful, but for autistic people in particular, yeah. they said that using cloth pads, period ah. underwear, and menstrual cups right. was a m- major uh, improvement for managing 
um, periods yeah. for that because of the sensory experiences that they would have during a period. And so now know, we've got to something. What that could look like is that people who are having a period, uh, you know, without those, without menstrual cups or cloth yeah. pads or yeah. underwear, can't, you know, like go out to work or go out to school. Right, it's a facilitator. And without that, and the little matter of having to pay VAT on the bloody things, you know, you've got problems. What I was going to say was that you've got a unique personal experience of a woman's private parts in relation to having a period, in relation to being a functional individual, which will vary from individual to individual because of sensory needs and possibly another dimension unique to those private parts, which no one's ever experienced. So I made a mistake before. I said, oh, your book about super safe living in the autistic spectrum. There were other books, but none of them, believe me, are like laid out like yours. There's wonderful sections. So I hope I haven't been wrong when I said your book was unique. I think it is unique. I think it's a marvellous thing. It's a lovely picture on the front. But what is unique, what I've definitely got right, is that your period book is an innovation. Because again, it's from the inside out. And you see the issue I've mentioned about the body, that particular part of the body. And there's an overall theme, you know, from when we first started talking about negotiation of the most intimate acts and experiences that a young autistic woman can go through on her own. Yeah, we started off with you coming to London, what happened to you? And then we get on to menstruation. So you've really, I think, right, you know, when, when it came to writing the book, you didn't give us some bloody maudling essay on, oh, my life as a young woman, I had autism and sensory issues, which is okay. No, you went straight for something really important and, and innovative, definitely innovative and really important, actually, and stuff that however close to the greater market hits, others will, will use that. Your book is kind of like John Lennon said before Elvis, there was nothing. <laughs> it's the same thing before your book, there was nothing like that. Oh, thank you. Well, I bet um, you the first book's innovative I mean, anyway. Hmm. I don't think there's much of my experience in the book apart from, <sighs> Yeah. I suppose apart from stylistically, like I've written it right. and what I, from experience of working with autistic right. people and maybe from my own experience, what hopefully is a friendly and clear style of, yeah. of writing. It's really well laid there, out. I've got it. It's great. There is a, um, there is like a page that's about my experience mm. of um, uh, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is, it's like a bout of depression just right. before you have a period. Right. Um, and uh, I'd started taking a progesterone only pill and okay. that stopped and that made a big difference. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, what I suppose what really inspired me was how passionate some autistic people were like, you know, that they were really saying this is really important to me. It's not just like, cause like back in the day and I don't even remember when it was, but I did a stimming survey. I've got it. The, yeah, yeah. It's great. and yeah. people were so passionate about it. Like you could just, well, you know, when someone writes something, you can tell if they're just mm. wanting to help you out and be nice or if they actually are really like, this is important to me. Yeah. And yeah, I could just tell that this is something that was really important to people, that they, that they felt wasn't communicated and that they wished they'd known sooner. And so the idea that someone could come along and write a book and actually tell people that, you know, before they even start their periods, yeah. you know, that that was, that that was something that the autism community would value. And mm -hmm. I would describe myself as, um, mm -hmm. uh, as, as a, um, 
as doing research that is um, valued by, you know, like my driver, what drives me to do research or to do anything within autism is what the autism community would value. So, you know, Mm -hmm. if the autism community wants a book about periods, then I'll I'll write it, you know, because... Because it's something that's needed. and, and well, I so see you as going a bit further than that and innovating things that didn't exist before but should have existed, which is what I always said about your first book, this bloody thing. In the year 1980, okay, there was a book called Our Bodies, Ourselves, written by a women's health collective in America. And the uh, preface said, we wrote this book, which is two inches thick, which has got a picture of Sigourney Weaver on the cover, because we couldn't find anything else like it ever that brought everything about women's health in one place. And that always made a big effect on me that there was still time to innovate. And I think you'll find that you've covered a lot more bases because, again, I come back to the same issue about the body and intimacy and negotiation, which is why I did a YouTube film called The Joy of Casual Sadism, training autistic people how to bully, manipulate, coerce, and exploit in order to know when it's happening to them. Because I personally... I get this kind of thing all the time. You might not think it's a look at me, but I am actually a deeply vulnerable person. But for me, it's a whole different level of abuse. You're in an office and somebody comes over and you're like a child and they start touching you or they start playing games with you. You, I've literally had people in offices come up to me and tell me to do incredibly stupid things with material and destroy stuff. And I'm just standing there, unable to handle the situation, but knowing something is very, very wrong. Of course, it didn't. Uh, but there has been occasions when I was much younger when I've been very, very vulnerable. And people would never believe this about me now if they see me. It's, it's just the same thing about how do you live your life as an independent woman of any age that you are able to negotiate, handle your own body and its demands and other people's bodies. Other people's bodies. You came around to mine years ago, you see, and did some recording. It took you three hours to get started. And then I knew something was wrong, and we did things, didn't we? We got organised about you. We got organised, and things happened. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, you mentioned, you remind me about that. I, oh, I just feel so proud. I feel so moved that I've done something good for some someone else. Whoa, that that's like you know, that's what you want to do. You want to be responsible for helping someone at a, a really deep level. You know, and thank you for that. <laughs> I'm very proud, actually. As long as I've brought some good things. Because the thing about me is that I always get on the wrong side of people because I'm very direct and I have to realise huge amounts of energy all the time to compensate for my lack of executive function. I'm always getting, well, I used to be getting organised, getting a bit old now, but it's where all the shows and the book came from because things didn't exist that I wanted to exist, so I had to bring them into existence and creating a space in which people could relate. So you've got Robin's Rocket, which is a musical space you created in which people can come who are neurotypical and autistic and they could just interact with each other in, in the context of the music. And this brings me on to your great love of your life, the uh, the horn. Tell us about the horn. Uh, yeah, well, I, 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 there's a couple of things I wanted to say about the period but before we move on. I think right. you should talk about the period book. Yes, please. Yeah, sorry. I, I just wanted to say, so after the survey, mm. I started to look at um, the books that were out there already. And when yeah. I look at books, you know, like if I'm researching to write a book, I will look on Amazon, I'll look at the top sellers mm. within that genre, and then I'll look at the negative comments as well as the positive comments yeah. because I want to know what is missing. And I also look at um, the least popular books within whatever I'm researching 
to try and understand what it is that people found difficult. And one thing that I also saw um, through like online forums and stuff was parents saying things like, my child came home and they just don't understand why they're getting this information. It's all too much too quickly. And, um, or, you know, my child can't cope with any mention of blood or, yeah. you know, l- like things like that. Um, yeah. and then looking at the negative comments within some of the books, some of it was, you know, um, th- yeah, I don't want my child to see a penis in the book about periods. I want them to learn about the female body and, um, I, you know, th- things like that. And so I, and I looked at some of the bestseller books, like I ordered them, I bought them, I yeah. looked at the, and um, what I noticed was that they weren't very direct in their language. They weren't very literal. Um, so I developed a flap system and um, put the images on a grid and then you can cut the flaps out and you can lift the flaps to look at the images and brilliant. you can put the flap frame brilliant. on any pages that you want. Um, and so I developed that. But also um, I paid to have a photo shoot done uh, where – I made I made uh, blood out of water and food coloring yeah. and uh, strawberry yeah. jam. Yeah. <laughs> and I basically I I got the photographer to take photos of me. I mean I had a lot like there's there's no indecency. You can't see any genitalia or anything mm, like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had him take photos of me like changing a pad and yeah. um, you know like. Yeah. Um, a bloodied piece of toilet tissue yeah. and then we made some poo with cocoa beans um and uh <laughs> yeah uh, not cocoa beans, coffee beans oh, and yeah, uh, yeah. mixed it with blood and then like this is what you know uh, so i made very realistic photos unless yeah. someone told you they weren't real people think they're real um and also explained that on a lot of tampon packets and also menstrual cup information there's often this cross-section diagram of the female reproductive system and to me it never made any sense until i started to understand about it so Mm. i explain how the 3d model gets gets created into um you know a a cutaway um and i i feel like that, that for me those photos is really important i just wanted to mention Mm. that Um, thank you because again you see you're doing it again you you had to develop yet more skill set in order to express what you wanted to express. And this is all your innovation that you had to go into film set prop making of excretia and urine. Uh, my friend Chella was doing a show about periods on the Edinburgh Fringe and she was uh, going into yeah, this. Well, you remember Chella? You yeah? put me in touch with Chella and yeah. Chella was a really important part of the book process. Yeah. She introduced me to the Society for Menstrual Cycle Research um, which is an amazing organisation, mm. and uh, she told me that they have a conference coming up, and I submitted a paper, and I went to um, Atlanta and did a talk at this conference, and I was really nervous because I thought that, you know, I'm not going to know it. Like, I go to autism conferences pretty regularly, but I'm not going to, like, know anyone here, and that's kind of a bit scary. But um, actually, I made, like, 120 friends. Like, it was the most friendliest and amazing <laughs> conference ever. Yeah, but it was also really, – I didn't really know much about period underwear or menstrual cups yeah. or cloth pads. Yeah. But I learned about it 
there talking to people rather yeah. than just reading it on the internet and that was amazing so thank you Chella and thank you to all of the amazing people at SNCR um, Society for Menstrual right. Cycle Research Peggy and Chris yeah and yeah it's really incredible and uh, and then from that then I started to get involved with things so I was part of Plan UK's they did a, a report that was about um, period poverty um, yeah. I was involved with that with uh, Lucy um, and I met people from like the Cup Effect and uh, Worker and loads of people that way. And then uh, also a massive thank you to Bryony Farmer, um, who does uh, was Precious Star Pads, but now it's Precious Star Vlogs yeah. um, on YouTube. And uh, yeah, I met all these amazing people and Cella, of course. I yeah. met Cella, and all of these people Great were show. just so helpful and so yeah. nice <laughs> and so informative. They're really incredible. But yeah, so Cella, I met her for you. Yeah. And she was doing a, a thing about periods at the fringe. That's right. She did a long-running show. It did about three years of this period play. And I went to see it. It was in a remote venue. She bought my book and got very friendly with her. Uh, and other things happened. Ah, <laughs> um, yeah. oh, I was going to say that the work that we've discussed so far, it should have been in the world, but it wasn't. And generation after generation of autistic women have existed all the way back to the beginning of Homo sapiens. And they haven't had any of this reference and they've had to work it out for themselves. My mother's generation, my mother could never have had a conversation about any of these things except with a doctor, I think, an informal language. And I don't believe she ever talked about it to her friends. Maybe these things were discussed. But I refuse to believe that her generation could ever have been so free. And your generation just, oh, in the street and everything, which is freedom. And as yeah. a male relating to the world of women being free, super safe living, the autistic spectrum, and the world of periods, what you see is the horror that all this has only recently come about. And as one uh, autistic woman agree with me I said the reason you guys are all innovating these things now and doing all these things and behaving the way you are and running around the world and being free and swearing and having the sexuality you have is because you couldn't do it before because of what people keep talking about as a, as patriarchy uh, which my well, generation of male couldn't really get their heads around entirely go on I should say that um this sort of freedom of being able to talk about periods and mm. you know people understanding about it is quite western um because actually there's lots of parts of the world where you know like in nepal for example uh you know women have to like go into huts when they have a period or go yeah. with the cat yeah um and there's uh parts of you know africa where people just stay off school i mean that does happen here a little bit but in Africa, people stay off school when they have a period because they don't have any, you know, like cloth pads or period underwear or anything like that. Um, and uh, in other, you know, in different parts of the world, periods, you know, is quite a shameful thing. Mm. Um, and people aren't able to talk about it. And it's the same with autism. There's lots of parts in the world where right. people are still not able to talk about it. So it is, that is quite a, you know, like Western um, yeah. phenomenon that, that first you know, world freedom the empowerment that all the individuals but I mean I think um, I think the weird part of there's on Netflix at the moment there's a film that I haven't watched yet but it's called uh, Crip Camp 
And basically, it's yeah. about the disability rights movement and development of the um, Americans with Disability Act, the ADA, um, mm-hmm. in, I think, 1994. So a run-up to that. Um, and it was about, you know, freedom and independence. Mm-hmm. And that's very pivotal, uh, p- pivotal because I think a lot of the world, in a way, sort of is influenced by the US, like... Um, you know, like Alex was saying in your last episode, mm-hmm. you know, about five guys that, you know, there used to just be one of them and now there's loads of them and they're all over the world and you were saying how it's a franchise. And so I think that um, different things, you know, they start in one place and then they move to another. And yes, in, in the UK, for the most part, you know, it's very liberated. But, you know, within some communities within the UK, um, it. It's not so liberal and um, people can't talk about it and they are ashamed. And it's the same, you know, that's that's true of periods and also of autism that, um, you know, that there are some, you know, cultures who believe or, or think that autism is, you know, like a curse or something like that. Or they don't, um, you know, it's very difficult for parents to get support. Like mm. sometimes people think it's their fault. Um, so, I mean, it is, is very, you know, we're two white people who live in the United Kingdom in London. And so our experience is probably going to be quite different to, oh, yeah. you know, people from different cultures, different ethnic backgrounds in different parts of the UK. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, I, I do think that, you know, I grew up in Suffolk yeah. and I was long, you know, like 30 miles from the nearest city. Um, seven miles from the nearest town, mm. four miles from the nearest shop. Mm. Um, and the experience there of being autistic was very different. Um, yeah. Richard Roy Grinkler once told the story that um, there was um, a boy named Big Boy in um, South Africa and his parents had had pressure from their family to send him to um, a uh, to send them to, I want to say witch doctor, but I'm not 100% sure that's it. Complimentary medicine practitioner. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, so I think the story was a witch Homeopath. doctor, but I'm not 100% sure. But anyway, so he was well, sent to this person. What kind of magical witch doctor was And he was there for a couple it? of weeks, and yeah. they came back and picked him up, and a guy said, or I don't know what gender the, the person was, but, yeah. you know, they said... Oh, you know, I I know what's wrong with your son. Not that autism is anything to have wrong, but you know, um, or I know your son. I know why your son is the way he is. He's autistic. Yeah. And the parents were like, "Oh, we're so glad you said that because we kind of knew that." <laughs> and they said, "How do you know about autism?" Yeah. And I said, um, "It's oh, you know, a group of us. We meet once a month in a church basement to access the internet, and we learn about conditions that way." Yeah. So, um, you know, and um, I think that that's you know quite um, quite an important thing that people are getting information like because it yeah. would be you know if you didn't know any better you know if you think about it it's easy to understand you know why somebody might you know think oh this person you know is possessed or something like that you know if you, if you don't know any better if you don't have any knowledge about autism or about that, neurology yeah. um and you know, we're all informed by the information that we have available to us. So, like, when I was growing up, like, you know, <laughs> a little backwater, if you like, in Suffolk, is, yeah. 
is not going to be the the uh, in general they're not really the places that are like um the forefront of new information right and, new cutting edge and neurodiversity uh, research yeah yeah i mean I, I mean i got diagnosed relatively young because i got diagnosed in um i was 11 yeah. so i think it was 98 um yeah, it was ninety-seven or ninety-eight, hmm. and I was I was referred in ninety-four. And the reason I mention those dates specifically is because Asperger's only became a diagnosis in nineteen ninety-four. So before that, you couldn't officially be diagnosed as autistic unless you also had a learning disability, or in America they'd say intellectual disability. Mm-hmm. Um, mm, yeah. And so you know, so in a way, the intellectual I was, disability you know, is the, the focus of uh, Silicon Valley. They more or less taken NASA, according to Steve Silverman. An intellectual disability that gives you abilities to work in places like that and innovate. Yeah. Anyway, you see the paradox. It's an intellectual disability that bonds us as friends. An intellectual disability that is the basis of my marriage. A bit of a difficulty with calling it a disorder. Hmm. No, I I think um, so. In this context, learning disability yeah. basically means you have an IQ of I think sixty or below. Right. Yeah. So um, so it's quite it's not about like being dyslexic or having ADHD. It's quite specific. Yeah. So it's in the UK, when we say learning, learning disability, disability yeah, it normally means IQ, that yeah. the person's IQ score is sixty or less. Right. But it's only, IQ tests are only really testing a, a narrow set of things. Um, and in the U.S., they say intellectual disability. But previously, um, in the U.S. particularly, uh, they would say um, mental retardation, and which is where the uh, retard slang comes from and why it's so hurtful to people within the autism community. Hmm. That's right. The parents were probably undiagnosed. Grandparents on at least one side were undiagnosed and they've got an intellectual disability, I see. So what... I think an overall theme of everything so far is that the field, be it describing autistic people or uh, issues about the body of autistic people or just issues about life in general, was this narrow. And you came along and you did work to expand that and to make it broader because, as you always say, you're the, you represent the lived experience rather than from a book. And what you've done i think that has made a difference in your thinking as well is that it's just not that simple in life we're just not intellectually disabled are we it's bigger well, there, are, but there are many people it. who are autistic who there have are. intellectual disability yes, there are. disability yeah. um but uh what my my point was that before 1994 you know if i'd been referred like when i was three i wouldn't have been able to get an autism diagnosis yeah. And so even though I was in Suffolk, which is, you know, seems such a long way from anywhere, they did know about Asperger's syndrome. And I was just really lucky. And I think that thing about things being narrow, well, I mean, I think, you know, there were a lot of people that came before me. Luke Jackson springs to mind. You know, when he was 13, he wrote Freaks, Geeks and Asperger's Syndrome. Yeah. Um, and that was an incredible it's book. I read great, that. isn't it? Yeah. I was at least. 18 but mm. i think probably before that um so, like there were people that i looked up to and then you've got people like josh muggleton right and josh muggleton was a really important inspiration for me because i saw him being involved with the um nes education campaign which i think was the one before i mm-hmm. exist 
um, make school make sense might have been that might have been what it's called um, and he gave talks at his local branch which was then in Guildford and he blogged a lot about his experience of education how mainstream education didn't work for him um, and then obviously you know you've got the really big names like Wen Lawson and mm. Donna Williams and um, um, I didn't know about Jim Sinclair until much later yeah. but I, uh, and then yeah, I knew about Donna Williams and I knew about Wen Lawson um, mm. and there was one other person. It might have been Leanne Holiday Willie. And again, I didn't know about her until later, but there were four of them that started the um, like, like the Autism International Network. Yeah, um, I know, yeah. And yeah, so I mean, well, they really, you know, then there was nothing. Uh, and when I came along, you know, because that, that kind of work was done in like 94, 95-ish, um, you know, so by the time I was like 16, 17 and had free reign on the internet in like 2002, 2003, there was a lot of people out there. Um, mm. And, you know, because like, you know, Josh is a bit older than me um, and uh, obviously, and then of course there's Temple Grandin. Mm. Um, but I think that for me, like, Luke is a bit younger than me and Josh is a bit older than me. And they were like people that, you know, it was like reachable. Like what they were doing, I was really inspired, particularly by Josh. And that seemed reachable. Like it seemed like something I could do. I could relate to it. And so when I started teaching people about autism in kind of 2003, 2004, you know, in a way it, it might not have been possible without them. And then, of course, there's, like, neurotypical allies like Judith Gould and Lorna Wing. Yeah. And their um, 1979 paper, the Campbellwell study, yeah. it really taught me about what theory of mind was. Um, mm. And I really understood why I'd had so many problems growing up, um, being bullied, and that my responses hadn't really been the right thing to do in certain situations. And mm. I never understood why. And when I'd asked for help, people kind of got cross with me. Yeah, and me too. Uh, because I think they thought I was, you know, being funny with them. They or, had you know, no like, concept. Not funny, but, you know, I, I think they thought I knew something that I didn't actually know at all. And then so the idea that then you could go and teach non-autistic people about autism and maybe even when I started training maybe I maybe I hadn't heard of Josh maybe that was a couple of years later but yeah. there was a time in my life where I went from not really knowing anything about autism to suddenly like really owning it and my mum particularly I remember her like starting to use words like neurotypical and stuff and I'm like why are you talking like that, Mum? She's like, I'm just going to use the words you're using. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. okay. And I'm trying to get that like, with the kids. Oh, okay. Like, this is something that I'm part of, um, oh. and I was connected to people, even if, like, at that time, I didn't know Josh, or and I didn't know Luke either. I don't really know Luke now, to be honest, but. Yeah. We're all connected and we're all sort of, um, I think some people might say brethren, you know, we're all like connected in a way. We're well, all that's part what I was saying before about empathy, with. you see. We have empathy for our own kind and we are all connected, yes, and we should support each other. Well, I think I mean that like with LGBTQ plus, um, like, you know, there's Pride Day and now, of course, we have Autistic Pride Day on the 18th 
June and hopefully lockdown will be over by then. Well, yeah. um, <laughs> Fingers crossed. You know, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of stuff now on the internet like you know you're not alone anymore hopefully people i'm sure there are many autistic people that feel that they're alone still but hopefully the message reaches what? more people now than it did in you know 2002 or whatever can i just um, address the thing also about the effect of the internet i mean 1995 was when internet explorer came on windows 95 you right. know? like yeah, if you think about it schools were often you know a couple of years behind updating computers and stuff and that was you know it's a really amazing time to have grown up because i've seen you're going from like people not being connected to you know amazing things like wrong planet like you can just go on wrong planet and connect with people and it's really you know when i was when i started out doing surveys wrong planet was an amazing resource for that because they because people just were so happy to help me and i i feel really privileged and thankful that all of those people you know all along every time i do a survey people help and I know that, you know, what I'm doing helps other people, but I can only do it because other people are willing to answer my questions, which mm. probably are a bit weird can, can sometimes, I explain but they're, they're willing Robin, to help me. Robin, there's a whole, when you, you, you mentioned earlier about there are indeed very disabled people who are autistic, their natures are on top of them. This is a world that people like us, we don't seem to represent, but we try to. We don't have a lived experience of being that profoundly vulnerable. We're obviously very vulnerable in more different times of our lives. But this is a very important point that some people listening to parents are really disabled children and feel left out. And there's been a lot of animosity in some quarters with such people. But we do know what it is like to be disabled and vulnerable, don't we? We do know and we know others more so and less so. You know, and, and as we connect in the way you're describing, we get to share that information as you do with your work. Yeah, I mean, I was more talking just generally. Um, but, yeah, I think, I mean, obviously we can't represent what somebody with a learned disability or intellectual disability is experiencing. And it would yes. be wrong of us to, to try and say we're representing that. Um, but I think what we can do is highlight, actually, you need to find ways of communicating and listening. Yeah. And it might not be listening with your ears necessarily to spoken words. It might be sound or body language, but you need, you know, people who find it very difficult to communicate. Mm. You need to make extra effort. Like, yes. so I think that maybe that we can, maybe we can help people to, you know, really think about different experiences. And sometimes when I go into special schools, they'll say, you know, uh, it's really good to hear you speak because um, you give us ideas of how somebody might be experiencing the world and yeah. then they can use that information to try different ways of supporting somebody to see if that works better. So do you think, you know, I think it is important, I think it is really important to recognise that, mm. you know, that, that it is a wide spectrum mm. of, um, and people often have co-occurring conditions yeah. and, you know. Yeah, they um, do, yes, yes, very much so. My slogan here is uh, autism from a person, not just a textbook. Yeah. So it's giving you the textbook knowledge. It's not autism from a person, not a textbook. It's not just a textbook. Very deliberately, that just is important mm -hmm. because I want to give people factual information about mm -hmm. autism, mm -hmm. not just my opinion, yeah. but I also want to give them lived experience if that's helpful. And I think 
what nobody really sees or they get some sense of is just how much effort you make all the time and how brave you are to do this because you live on your own and you have people you work with but otherwise you work very hard on your own a lot of man hours to get the preparation done and you go to these places and you do the work and not everyone can do that and you have yeah. you have um co-conditions yourself as well yeah yeah and many of us do and one thing i always want to flag up about my work is i look like somebody who's completely blasé and doesn't have any cares doesn't have any appreciation of this and just talks about very narrow uh, margin of the lived autistic experience of people who are very able and are very capable of doing what I do on a stage but actually that's not the case at all that people like you and I are very good at hiding or, or coping with what we face and so you are able to lift the lid on this and say well actually this person just sitting there hardly relating or relating in certain ways you really there could be a whole different story going on and that's why our work is important. I think your work is very, very important altogether. Knowing you as a person, it's just that there isn't really another Robin Stewart running around doing what you're doing, let alone wearing hats so well. <laughs> <laughs> there isn't another Paul Wadey running around doing what you're doing. You know, I think Some we can all make that. <laughs> valuable contributions. And I think, I mean, at the moment, I'm part of um, Heart and Soul at the Hub, which is a welcome-funded residency. Yeah. Welcome is one of the biggest funders of health research in Europe. Yeah. And uh, I think um, recently um, people might have heard um, our colleague Jeremy, and I don't remember what Jeremy's surname is, but he works at Welcome and he knows a lot about COVID-19. So people may well have heard him um, talk about that. Uh, and, um, yeah, so the, the project that I'm doing, Heart and Soul um, at the Hub, is... Uh, a project basically that gives people with learning disabilities and autistic people mm. um, the opportunity to ask questions and research. It doesn't yeah. have to be about learning disability and autism. It, it can yeah. be about society yeah. um, or anything, really. And uh, Heart and Soul, they're an arts organisation. I've been a um, part of their... I've been a Heart and Soul artist for since 2017, so four years um it's been an amazing experience and they believe in the power and talents of people with learning disabilities mm. and autism yeah. Um, yeah and um they are yeah pretty amazing really um and the way that they're doing research like they're really when um when when we first applied you know the application process was not accessible and they um wanted people to have degrees and when you know we said well actually you know you can still do research and not have a degree yeah. and the point of this project is to work in a team right. um and so n not everyone has to have it's a the degree thing about methodology a isn't it it's about background in methodology and how to approach the research format it and to make conclusions blah blah well Everybody is is um, chipping in with how to format things and how to develop things, and uh, they've created a survey app that's accessible both on the yeah. the back end when you write the survey, but also when you answer it. So it doesn't you don't have to ask questions or answer them with mm. type text. You can, but you can also use pictures, audio, video, sound. You know, there's lots of alternative formats, and I think that that is really important because it hasn't really happened before. Mm. And people with learning disabilities, particularly, are normally just subjects of research, not the people actually doing the research. So I think that that's really powerful. Mm. 
And yeah, I think, you know, it's really... There's a revolution really, happening with the sort of inside-out research into a field that's for a very long time. And it started, the field of autism research started the outside in, uh, people who are relatively vulnerable, whose autistic natures on top of them, learning disordered, learning disabled. Uh, and now it's the other way around. There's all these autistic academics, people like yourself going uh, inside out whole new perspective and you can see there's there's a changing of the old guard and the new guard there's a bit of friction there as well isn't there yeah but um the, i mean the project's been really well received Good. um they had a the project we've had a paper published in kai which is a community uh, computer human interaction is a conference a really big conference in america and it's really highly regarded and we got in and unfortunately, we won't be able to go because of the COVID-19 outbreak. The, right. You know, the conference has been um, cancelled, but yeah. the paper will still be published. And that's yes. really important. That's quite significant. Mm. Um, so, yes, I think and also Welcome has been incredible, like amazingly supportive of us. So I think that that's a really, yeah, it's an amazing thing to be part of. And yeah. I hope that, you know, as time goes on, I'm also working with um, Oily Carp. Yeah. So Oily Carter are a theatre company. Mm. Uh, they're based in South London and they do theatre for uh, under fives, for people who are autistic and yes. people who have complex needs, uh, so like profound and multiple learning disabilities. Mm. And so I I really want to, um, I like I, I feel like I have a lot of privilege, you know, like people talk about white privilege. Yes. I guess that I have what you might describe as intellectual privilege mm. um, because I can speak fluently and, and not, not, I'm not saying I don't have problems because I do. And, and, you know, I don't always understand everything that's said yeah. to me and things like that, but you know, I have privilege and I think it's really, for me, it feels important that I use my privilege to give, um, you know, to like that. I don't just think, Oh, well I can just get on with my life. And like, actually I, learn about there's a lot of people with um like profound and multiple learning disabilities who also have an autism diagnosis and actually you know it's it's really important that I don't just stay in my little bubble that I learn about different people's experiences and also um you know challenge myself to learn new ways of communicating and presenting information and working with oily cart means I get to do that. Mm. Do you get to work with the vulnerable young people as well. I do, yeah. Um, so I'm currently I'm working on a production called Jamboree. Yeah. And Jamboree is um, basically there's two musicians that go into a school, yeah. you know, what is called uh, embedded into the school, yeah. and they do music sessions with the kids yeah. uh, to hear the kids' ideas. Um, and it might be a sound. Hmm. Uh, like, for example, one of the kids, their sound was... Ba 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 ba, ba 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 ba. That's not a very good um, uh, impression of it, but but you know, so it could be something simple, or it nuts. could be um, like it could be a a shaker that goes shh. Um, like so, it could be really small, or it could be a little riff on a mm. keyboard. It, it could be anything because um, a lot of the children have. Um, great difficulty um, moving and holding things and manual dexterity and so it might be that they can't um, play instruments in a traditional way um, and you know lots of the kids don't speak but they might uh, make vocal noises and so you might use a microphone and a delay pedal for mm. example 
um, and a speaker and get them, you know, to make sounds in the microphone and then they hear it repeated. Um, and, you know, so, so it could be very, like, the, the level of participation is very, you know, individual. But basically, the two musicians do some sessions in the school mm. to get the kids' ideas, and we work it into the show. And then at the end of the school week, uh, we do the show for the kids, and there's a group of us, and uh, we have this amazing set that has these really cool lights and a mirror floor. And when we're in theatres, um, we use uh, dry ice, uh, haze, I think they call it in the theatre world. And we have a podium and a big drum, <laughs> and we have amazing costumes. Um, I've got a picture, actually. Yeah, please, um, yeah. Let's have I a look. That your, um, that your audience won't be able to see the picture, but I can show you oh, the you'd picture. you'd be surprised what I can do. Oh, yay, look at that. That is totally rock and roll. There's a person in uh, sort of purple. Is that you in purple? Uh, I think that's probably me. Yep, brilliant. And then we have different um, sensory experiences. So, like, um, one of the tunes is about um, vibration and low sounds. And uh, we have these drum skins that we call membranes that we put over the out of the instrument. Like the sousaphone has a bell where the sound comes out and the trumpet has a bell. Yeah. And the clarinet, I don't know what the clarinet's end bit is called. But anyway, <laughs> we do that and particularly it works really well with the sousaphone. So Reed, we play low notes. I walk around with a speaker because I'm like, I'm like an electronic trumpeter from Mars or You're something. You're wearing a speaker. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. the sousaphone is the best one because okay. the kids, sometimes they put their feet in it and they feel the vibration. Yeah. They put their hand on the drum skin. Like, it's not a drum. Like, it's just to feel the vibration. Mm. And then um, then there's uh, another one that is uh, that has this really lovely lighting effect um, and kids get to shine torches and um, sparkles on the, on the, um, on, on a, on a dress uh, that one of the characters is wearing yeah. um and yeah it's, i mean so everyone's got a thing you know um so my my thing is the i'm uh the the kind of the um the the overall kind of theme is being listened to and uh so my last song is um the last song is my song yeah. and uh it is well, it's not. We don't in the in the show. We don't have names. We're we're just you know however people interpret us. But you know we're we're all called the same thing. We're all musicians. We're or so I would describe myself as a musician, not as Robin. Okay. Um, and uh, so the the last tune is um, about people listening, and mm. it goes. Um, listen, 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 everybody. Everybody, everybody, everybody. <laughs> but who, 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 who yeah. are we really listening to? You, 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 you should be listened to. Um, yeah. That's a bad version of it. No, that's brilliant. Don't worry, you got rhythm. Yeah. Got and music. we have flags. And yeah. uh, the inspiration for it is Bjork's um, mm. uh, uh, independence. Yeah. Declare independence. Don't let them do this to you. Yeah, uh, that was that was their um, yeah. uh, like mood board. Like that was like their inspiration for it. You're giving so, people a glimpse of things they might otherwise never experience in lots of different ways at once. Yeah, well, the it's kids, really uh, the kids that that yeah. come to oily cart shows, you know, they wouldn't be able to come to a, yeah. a theatre, like for practical reasons. Um, but also, 
that uh, the you know something happening you know two feet away is no good to them that they need us to be right next to them right um, so where do you do the performances with them sorry where do you take the performances to do you go to the well, homes or to we were centers? supposed to be on tour this week so this right. week we're supposed to be in pool okay. and next week i think we're supposed to be in derby yeah so you take uh, them into the um, schools where they'll be um, yeah, normally the performances, if if we can, they'll happen in art in an art centre. Yeah. Um, we obviously we make sure that they have a room that would be accessible to the young people. But yeah, mm. um, so the two musicians that are embedded, they go to the school, and then sometimes we rehearse the last day in the school, and then on the Friday or the yeah. Saturday or sometimes both, we yeah. are based in an art centre. So the last one we did. Uh, was uh, at Warwick Art Centre. Right, before it all happened with coronavirus. And then, yeah, and then, you know, everything kind of stopped. But um, we're... Did you know I did a a 10-week placement with kids in a school in Canning Town? I was doing two hours a week of drama. So I had the same kind of experiences, and there was a scale of relative ability for the kids to engage with what we were doing or they couldn't engage they had to they only engaged on their own terms they were they were stimming very much you tried to get them into an activity be a policeman be a fireman be a doctor and they were drawn to doing their own thing in the group or they were doing their own interpretation of those people on what the group was doing so i could see i've had the same experience i've seen that they may not look sound and act like they're with it or they're having the experience that you want them to have, you hope they have, but they're doing it in their own way. And that's where autistic empathy comes in, your capacity to relate to our kind and to be there on the ground. That's why it's so important that we do these things, isn't it? I mean, I should say in the show, when we're actually doing the show, because I'm not one of the embedded musicians, we are just doing a show. So the kids are part of it in in their responses but you know we are just there to give them a really lovely time we're not there you know to give them therapy or fix them or you know you can do all that you can have a really lovely time and therapy and kind of fix people by giving them an overall experience that they can engage with as much or as little as they want as well because they can just sit outside and they can get involved i'm sure uh yeah i mean but it's very you know the artistic director really you know, in arts applications, she'll say, you know, these kids, their whole life is being taught something or being, you know, looked after or being fixed or therapy or, you know, all of that stuff. And, mm. you know, if you think about it, you know, most kids, you know, they get a time where they can just sit and be a kid and just have a nice time. And these kids often don't get that. So, the show gives them that time. Um, And people often say, um, like, you know, school staff and people like that, they often say, especially when we include the young person's voices and they come and see it and they recognise their voice and they respond in ways that they don't see them respond in school and that's really powerful for them um, and really important and it feels amazing to be part. But I really want to continue to learn it. I haven't been working with them that long since uh, like july august um and uh in january we uh, we went to japan they invited me to go to japan to do okay. some um, workshops to teach people about sensory theater which is the kind of theater that all you can't do so rather than it just being you know 
a play that happens six feet away from you. It's really a sensory experience. So did you go to Japan? Yeah. Yeah, whereabouts? And Nagoya. Right. And how long were you there for? Very intense. <laughs> oh, I. Um, it was very different. Yeah. Uh, I think I thought it was going to be different in different ways. Like, in a lot of ways, there's lots of sort of what I would have thought of as Western influences, which mm. is kind of a stupid way of looking at it, really. But, you no, know, no, people ride their bikes on culture. the pavement like the they do here, culture. and it's really annoying. And if anything, people ride their bikes there more on the pavement. Mm. Um, and they have green men and red men, we know, when you cross the road. Uh-huh. Um, and, I mean, obviously none of these things are really Western. You know, maybe the green and red man, man and bicycles came from other parts of the world. But I suppose I was thinking, I don't know, that it would somehow... Mm. be mm. a Japanese red and green was, man or something. I don't know. The whole experience of working with those particular people, you were bringing your culture to their culture at a subtle level, the things you might not be aware of. But, that well, yeah, but also they were sharing their culture with us. And that yeah. was, um, well, I mean, in a lot of ways it was very amazing. Yeah. Um, I went on the Shinkansen. Um, and, um, Is that a train? Yeah. Bullet train. Bullet train, yeah. It goes real fast, yeah. Did they push you on in the rush hour? They have men paid to shove you in. like. No, oh, no, no, we in. didn't go in the rush hour. Sensory um, train. Ah! <laughs> but, yeah, I went to Tokyo and Kobe. Yeah. Uh, I met the um, Otto Asabi project, um, which is really amazing. What is uh, Otto means sound and Asabi means, um, uh, means play, so yeah. it's Otto Asabi. Uh, oh no, sorry, Oto Sabi. Or is it also? Anyway, whatever. Sound <laughs> project, sound project. Sound play project. I know yeah. sound play. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that was cool. I went to Tokyo, um, went to Kyoto, like, I really saw a lot in 16 days. Good. Really... Good. Did you see any temples, any Zen rock gardens? I did, cool. yeah. I, um, I went to the big temple in Tokyo, yeah. and also I went to at least one shrine. Hmm. Mm, I'd love to do that. Just go to Kyoto, spend all the time in the Zen rock gardens and the shrines, and temples. Well, we went to the Imperial Palace, but it was closed. But yeah. um, right. we're, we're in the garden. Um, I, I mean, January is not the best time of year. Like, it'd be it's better to like go now, I suppose, you know, March, April, because uh, the you know the cherry blossom. But you know, thank goodness we didn't do that because yeah. we wouldn't be able to. So it's you know, I feel. I feel they're privileged. So, Robin, have you got any future projects coming up? Yeah, I'm currently writing a book about self-employment for autistic people. Good. So you're doing which it again. Which is the first book Very I've written important. that isn't gendered, which is yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really important. There's one thing we love to do is work on our own. And that's what I love. Yeah, well, you know, what you were saying earlier about um, work. Well, uh, I yeah, I actually... When I have, when I'm working with other people, actually find, uh, you know, in terms of if someone else, my boss is my yeah. manager, yeah. I find that quite stressful. Yeah. I am very good at sort of just getting on with it on my own. Mm. And actually, if somebody was saying you have to do this by this time and they're going to keep checking in on me, I'd find that quite difficult. Mm. Mm. I've had a lot of that uh, working in tandem with others. And if you get a good working relationship, it's wonderful. It's a bit tricky. What I do at the moment is working from home for the NAS, and you have to get a lot of instructions over the email, which can be easily 
misconstrued, you get a grip on what's being said. This whole culture about remote working is a bit tricky. You often want to pick mm. up the phone every now and again and say, please be specific. And then you're all like, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, agree, what yeah. do you mean um, by that? You know. The other thing I'm working on is um, Robin's Rocket. I just have, um, mm. I've just made a welcome pack. Um, yeah. So the idea is that whenever an artist plays Robin's Rocket, it seems ridiculous. Why would one night need a welcome pack? And it's, you know, but every time an artist plays, I have to send them this long email asking them for stuff, you know, like, mm. do you have any time constraints? Like, you know, I, is there a certain time you can't get to, like, if, if your sound check is a half past five, is that a problem basically, yeah. you know, or six or, you know, what, you know, when, it, when can you get to the venue? When do you have to leave by, um, do you, you know, do you, do you have any access requirements? Um, what, uh, what equipment are you bringing? Uh, what's your tech rider? Yeah. Uh, you know, things like that. Um, and so I decided that it would kind of be better and more accessible if everything was in a document, but also, um, I found, that and this isn't you know aimed at anyone in particular but i found that um actually you do need to tell people what to expect in terms of a sound check Hmm. so if a sound check is going to be if everyone's going to have 30 minutes then you know if you tell people you know on the get-go i think they say that sound checks are 30 minutes everyone gets the same amount of time unless there's a technical problem in which in which case we have to solve the technical problem but you know when your time is up you know someone's going to tell you to please stop because we've got to go to the next person it's the same with when you're playing um i i try and make sure the the live music is finished by 11 mm. because then people can get the last trains home and stuff and obviously yes. a lot of people in london use public transport uh so it's not that we don't want to hear you play but it's just we need to try and keep to time so things like that if you can let people know those things before they even get there and before they're thinking about sound checks, then it's much easier to say, actually, do you mind stopping now because your 30 minutes is over. An autistic mind to be systematic and you're also being very considerate of other people in a way a lot of venues and events usually aren't. Although they do try to stop at a certain time, be considerate of the last bus. Often a lot of the places I've been, it's a hell with the last bus that we want to keep playing. You know, so nowadays I'm aware of bands it's not like it used to be. Now they've got a time budget. Have we got time for one more? No, we haven't. And it goes on like that. Well, yeah, I think the thing now is that um, lots of venues have curfews. So, yes, you know, that's it, yeah. they, they have a, a legal duty to stop live music mm. at a certain time. So that's always a consideration. But anyway, so I'm, I've been working on that. Um, and that's actually been really good because I've created a resource that now other promoters would be able to use and adapt their own purposes so that's good, good. good. Um, and now I'm working on um, it's more of a if people want it if it's easier for them uh, a sort of template for a tech rider and mm. for an access rider mm. Mm. Um, so that's interesting because I've never tried to write an access uh, it's more of um, it's it's more like asking them you know offering them a menu of things that might help uh, you know, like me, for example, one of the things in my access rider would be uh, I'm I'm not very good in dim light, so I need someone to guide me onto the stage, mm. and I need someone to tell me if there are any steps and show me where the steps are, and I need somebody to um, take me to the toilet. I mean, I I can toilet by myself, but mm. if the venue like Cafe Otto, it's dark and I can't get to the toilet on my own without bumping into things and also it just it feels horrible to feel lost in space like 
it's not that I don't know where the toilet is, but if I can't see what's around me, then I've got no mm. way of really being 100% sure where I am no, in the room. You get disorientated, you know, yeah. People yeah. Me. So, you know, things like that is really important. So yeah. I just thought if I made a um, access rider, you know, that a template that people could fill in and add things to, then it might be easier for them to recognise, oh, actually, this would really help me and make it easier for them good to stuff, ask for it. Good stuff. Right, Robin. Thank you very much for talking to me and thank you for having me in your home, albeit in a virtual capacity. Finally got to see the joint. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Paul. Thank you, Robin. Bye-bye. Bye.